Welcome back to season three of the Charity Matters podcast. I'm Heidi Johnson, lifelong helper, nonprofit founder, and your host. I've been interviewing the helpers for a decade with my blog, and I'm so excited that we're now sharing these inspiring conversations on our podcast. Join me as we learn the challenges and stories of innovators, entrepreneurs, and modern day heroes who set out to solve the problems of humanity. Today, our guest is Brian Butler, founder of the nonprofit Foster the Mind. Join us as Brian shares his incredible story of depression, struggles with mental health, and suicidal thoughts, and his path forward, what saved him, and how he is now using that to save hundreds of students and children struggling with the same problems. It's a beautiful story. You're not going to want to miss this. I am so excited to have Brian Butler here today from Foster the Mind, an incredible nonprofit that really focuses on um, mental health. And we're going to learn from Brian today about the amazing work that he's doing to serve so many with in such need right now um, of his services and incredible work. So welcome, Brian. I'm so happy that you're here today. Yeah, me too. Thank you for having me on, Heidi. I appreciate it. It is really great to be here. You know, um, I always meet people, as I was saying, in the most unexpected ways. And full disclosure, Brian's wife and I were at a meeting together and um, she was sharing um, very proudly about the work that Brian was doing. I said, oh, Brian started a nonprofit. I need to talk to her for Charity Matters. So I'm really excited that this actually came to fruition and we're having this conversation and especially about mental health, which if anything is on the forefront of all of our minds these days, I definitely think um, it's mental health. So why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about what Foster the Mind does? Uh, kids in the foster care system uh, are diagnosed with PTSD twice, twice uh, as much as veterans, twice as much as those in the military. So primarily we're focusing on abuse and foster, abuse and foster kid population. Um, that's my passion. Um, which surprisingly impacts more people than you would care to know. You know, people that you don't even know are in the foster care system have trauma and unresolved trauma, and so which creates a lot of mental health issues. And it's typically not really addressed or focused on. So when you, by the time you get to a therapist or someone, you're given all kinds of diagnoses like generalized anxiety disorder and all these different disorders, but the reality of it is usually the root cause of that is some sort of, not always, but oftentimes or paired with some sort of trauma, whether it be in childhood or later in life. But a lot of what I see is is those who have suffered childhood trauma and just buried it. And the brain does a pretty good job of trying to bury it and push it back. And so over time, um, it begins to fester. And so they're oftentimes not addressing the, the original issue that caused the current level of mental health function. Well, and you can't even think of foster care, which once upon a time, you know, we, we our country got rid of the word orphanage and changed it to foster care in the in the 50s, I believe, that without, of course, there's trauma. If you are a child that doesn't have a family or has been moved in multiple families or has had right. to be removed from your family. I mean, it's, they, they go hand in hand, right? They, they, right. they just go hand in hand and it's, it's, it's absolutely tragic. 
but these kids are beautiful kids and, and you're giving them a chance to help them. So, you know, when you're, when you're a little boy and you, someone says, when you grow up, I want to be this nonprofit founder usually isn't the top of the list. Usually it's, you know, when I'm little, I want to be, you know, a president or a fireman or a policeman or whatever it is. Or a marine biologist. Or a marine biologist. Uh, okay, and then I want to be go. an architect. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's, it's it's interesting to me and fascinating, I think, to everyone, um, the path that we all go on that leads us to serve and leads us to the work that we end up doing. But um, I'm curious how you go from marine biologist or architect to um, what is the path that led you here? Because something happens, something happens along your path that leads you to this. And so I'd love to hear kind of the backstory of um, your with mental health and what led you to this incredible work? I grew up in a very uh, chaotic home. Uh, my father, I used to call, he didn't drink. We were big teetotalers, um, Southern Baptist church, hardcore, you know? Um, and so I grew up in an environment where I walked on eggshells all the time because my father would be, would get so angry all the time and it was very erratic. And so, but it's, it was extra confusing um, because it was a lot of mixed messages because my dad would always say, I love you and hug me and things. But on this, the other side of the coin is he would lose it all the time. He never knew what he would lose it about. So my mom and my sister and I, we would be lied all the time. We, we basically create our own way of coping by uh, avoiding the truth by working around my dad and basically everything in the household was revolved around his, his mood at the time. So, um, but, but, and if you, so hard. right. But what happens is you start to feel like it's your fault because right. when my dad would lose it over things that I did or said, or, and, and my, you're walking also, in a minefield every day and you yes. don't know what you're going to hit. And, and you don't know what's going to set it off. And you feel like if you step on it, it's your fault. The minefield went off. Exactly. And then you start to feel like as a child, what happens is the roles reversed. So now his moods are what the child have to attend to. So your needs don't get met. And then you're just, he's reversed the roles by doing that. And so I'm right. taking care of him. I'm trying to say the right things, do the right things. And then when he loses it, which he blamed us all the time for most things. And so it's our fault that he's angry. It's our fault. And so when right. you hear that long enough, you start to believe it as a child, especially you don't really have the inside of the clarity to realize that he's dysfunctional. And so right. it's something's wrong. Right. Right. And my mom really didn't have the strength. Like there's a couple of times that we were going to leave. I remember carrying suitcases out to the car when we were going to leave him and uh, just, I was young. So I don't remember why we didn't. I think my mom was just too afraid it also was during a time where you didn't talking about abuse and trauma and mental health and stuff was not really on the forefront of most people's minds. You just kind of dealt with it yourself. Yeah. And so it was very difficult too, because my dad would lose it on the way to church. And then we have to all ask nice and smile. And, and my dad was a deacon and uh. taught Sunday school. And I remember sometimes kids saying, because my dad joked around a lot. He's got a great personality and, and I, I'm grateful to him for that. But um, 
Yeah. Um, wow. So people will be like, it must be great to live at your house. It must be fun all the time. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Not so much. Not so much. Yeah. So, but so I when just did think- you kind of, when did you kind of realize that as, as a young adult that maybe, you know, this had kind of process all of this or when did it start rearing its kind of its head? Because it does. Well, when well, it it was it was a part of me all the time. My mood swings, uh, struggle with relationship, connecting. I don't know if you know much about attachment disorders, but but when you okay. have an environment like that, when you don't have a secure right. attachment, then then so mine. I mean, there's four different types of attachment: secure, anxious, avoidant, and anxious avoidant or disorganized, which is what I had. Of course, I didn't know that. So right. I would close to somebody, then I would push them away because in my mind, they're called deactivating strategies that your, your brain does to keep you safe. So if someone starts to get close to me, I push them away because I don't trust you. people. Right. Right. Yeah. They could hurt you. So um, <laughs> I think it's sometimes when I was in college, they would just tell girls, I remember a specific girl I really liked, and I was like, I just feel really uncomfortable. Of course, she just thought it was just a line and I just made it up. And it wasn't. I was being right. honest. I feel right. uncomfortable. I don't know what this is. Right. So. But you but, knew, right. You knew something was, you knew somehow right. things weren't okay, but you didn't know exactly. So and wasn't when you're growing a, up, no one knows anyways. We're all figuring it out. So none of us know. Everything's yeah. confusing when you're growing up. So um, in graduate school, one of my professors you know, talked about that we minister out of who we are. And so I had to write a paper. It was my freshman year in graduate school. And so after he read it, he was like, uh, this is really dark. <laughs> um, so he wanted me to go see a therapist. And so I did. I'm like, okay. So I went and saw a therapist and was given the diagnosis of major depressive disorder, um, which is why, again, I'm going to chip around here, but which is why I really like what I do. Because when you combine, so the DSM is really not based on the brain. It's based on symptom clusters, right? So so someone could be struck in the head with a baseball bat. And if they didn't share that information later on in life, if they didn't have a big scar and their brain healed and they went to go see a, a clinician, they might diagnose them with ADHD. Because when you have a, okay. when you have a head injury to the prefrontal cortex, then right. not staying on task, struggling with focus, memory, right. then they might say, "Oh, ADHD." But what I like about what I do is we use electroencephalograms, and we are able to record the activity of the brain. And it's not diagnostic in its of itself, but it it's a really good tool to look at what they're presenting with. And then do a really good job of doing an interview, a very thorough interview. I used to say that, uh, and because I kind of do it that way, my obsessive assessment. Obsessive well, assessment. So, so you, it was there a moment when you connected the dots that you needed to take? Why these things are painful and traumatic and horrible that happened to you, they ultimately are your gifts. They are the things that they are your gifts and, and your pain is your gift. Believe it or not, as horrible as it is, it's your gift. And now you're giving that gift to so many children in need. So how did you connect the two? Obviously the professor says you need to get help. You, you say, okay, I'm going to do this. 
But well, when did Foster the Mind, when did all the, the pieces come together? Was there a moment? Um, I volunteered at church. I worked with a lot of youth, but I always connected with the kids who really struggled. I always wanted to, to help. Because they were help. you, because you yes. were them and you get them. Yes. You walk the walk with them. Yes. And you can really only... I don't say you can't help someone you don't walk the walk with, but if you've walked a walk with someone that you have already done, it's a lot easier to help someone. And they it know is. that and they trust you and you know what they're going through. But I also realize now, I mean, later on in life, you realize that you're trying to find some meaning. So in saving them, you're giving yourself meaning because I always felt worthless that my dad hated me and I was, I, you know, I was actually a loser. And that was basically one of the things that I told myself all the time is I'm a loser. And as a person who struggled with, because with, I had ADHD, but trauma further makes it worse. Right. It just exacerbates it. So everything. I was intelligent, but I was struggling to get work done. Of course, back then, no one knew what it was. And so right. I just basically beat myself up more and more. And, and I work with a lot of ADHD individuals. My wife is the one that we wouldn't even have the nonprofit. It wasn't her because she's the linear. So I remember when we were first dating, like I would just come up with all these ideas, which is why she's the one that gave me the title chief passion, chief passion officer. She just made it up because but it's, it's, but that's so perfect. It's what every nonprofit is, founder should be with the title they should be going by. I think it's it is perfect. perfect. So I live in the future. So anytime we have a board meeting or a meeting, I'm never going to tell you something that we have to do today, like a step. I'm going to tell you where we're going to be in five years or 10 years. And my wife is like, okay, great. Let's so talk about how many years stuff. ago, how many years ago did you decide to start foster the mind? So, so after those 20 years, right. So I, I spent those 20 years and I was in graduate school studying psychology. And at that time I'd been, this was after a lot of crazy stuff. I went to jail a few times. Um, quit school and played in a band for a while. And then um, the one of my really good friends that was in the band with me, we, we went up uh, to Cape Cod uh, in Maryland, which is where they live. And we spent a summer there, but I really connected. I really connected with his mom. Like for some reason we just really bonded and just, and I call her my adopted mom, even though my mom was alive, but I, she was just such, I mean, she's the one that, um, sorry. That's all right. We all have those angels in our lives that come in. Well, it's been it's and, been a very emotional day yesterday and today. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, so. with what you're doing and what you're dealing with, rescuing children out of abusive foster care situations, <laughs> I would think every day for you, Brian, is an emotional day. Uh, but I think there's be. nothing wrong with being emotional, and you should be proud of having lucky that you have an angel like that. That yes. that came so in. And, she basically created the model that I follow today. So um, I hate. I don't like band-aids and I think that's most of what the mental health system provides, not all. And so I, I'm not cutting down anyone, but I don't right. like band-aids because that's mostly what I was given for 20 years. So, um, but 
I was in graduate school. After I'd met her, we played in the band, and then we broke up, and I fell apart, went to jail a couple of times. So, um, but I um, was, she She was the one that paid for me to go back to graduate school. Hers is going to oh, be a wow. web designer. She paid for that. She paid for me to go oh. to counseling and for medication. And then at the time, I thought I was diagnosed with bipolar, which I do not have. But, um, sorry, I'm trying to put this all together, but that's okay. But I was, but but I was in graduate school studying psychology, which she paid for. Right. So I, at the time was diagnosed with bipolar. And so I tried to kill myself again. I put a 357 in my mouth and was punching my my head, screaming, do it, just do it. Cause I've always hated my guts. I just, I hated who I was. And so I didn't do it because I knew my nephews. It would impact them greatly. And I love them desperately. So the next week I went to my professor, the, and I said, not my professor, but the one who oversaw the counseling department. And I was like, look, I am doing everything I'm supposed to do. I'm currently diagnosed with bipolar. I'm taking all the meds. I'm exercising. I'm praying. I'm going to church. I mean, I'm doing it all. There's gotta be something else because this is not working. And I'm going to, I'm going right. to kill myself because I, I, I'm tired of living in pain. So he said, well, um, there's a guy who came through here and has a clinic, Burleson, which is now where I live. And I actually worked at that clinic. But um, so I started going there and doing neurofeedback, which is more popular in Europe and Canada. So at the time, I was on seven different medications, which, again, I'm not anti-med. For a while, I was. But I know the brain's too complicated. So I have clients who are on meds, and I do neurofeedback. And we, we use a combination. So explain, explain what neurofeedback is, people that don't know. So neurofeedback is a operant conditioning model. So we do uh, like we do a 19-channel electroencephalogram, just the way like a neurologist would. Sometimes neurologists do more. The neurologists are looking for oftentimes seizure activity, traumatic brain injury, but we use it in a different way. Um, it was a very cool thing at one of my, my very first neurofeedback conference, I met a neurologist and I was talking to him and he's like, I was so excited to find out that my only tools are not meds or surgery, that you can actually re- rewire the brain. Uh-huh. So um, we do an electroencephalogram and then we have a lot of different ways of, of looking at at it, but we're looking for deficiency and excesses in certain waveforms because you, and I'll, I'll send you an image because the brain creates uh, delta, uh, alpha, theta, beta, and gamma. And so those are the different five brain waves it does, but each one plays a specific role. And it's, and it's really important to know where they are and what part of the brain is involved and so, like, for instance, with someone who has ADHD, there's different types, there's different phenotypes, but someone who right. has, has excess alpha, alpha is an idling state. It's kind of like when your, your car engine's running, but it's not in drive. So you don't really want that excessive alpha when somebody's trying to get something done. It's called alpha ADD because they can't get in gear to get something done. And so what we do is is we train the brain to work better. So we'll ramp up the prefrontal cortex or wherever So you had this, you had this done yourself and you, yes. you went from being suicidal to having, to having neurofeedback and what happened? How did it change you? It took me, it took me about a year and a half. So, and I'll, I'll send you, I've got, it's really cool. I've got this slide that shows, cause we tracked all my symptoms. 
for like two years. It's really right. cool. So you can watch you can sleep. You can see watch in your brain how it's changing. Right. Well, this, this is basically more of a, a, a just a, a snapshot. But yes, we would do brain maps as, as we continue to train because it's called long-term potentiation. So when you train long enough and the brain starts to realize, the brain really doesn't like to use a lot of energy. So once it's been hardwired a certain way, it holds it. Especially right. if there's been trauma, it doesn't. It's trying to protect you, but as you start to to rewire it, it fights it, and plus it takes a lot of energy to rewire it. But as you do that, it's kind of cool because as the brain improves, then like for me, I was on seven different meds and I got off all of them. You have this done, and then Amanda says you need to go and help other people. Or how did this happen? Well, once I once I, I finished. It's about a three-year journey. So I, I did all the training and I got so much better. But then there's the, like we work off the biopsychosocial, spiritual, and I add the financial to it, you know, right. a model of a person. So to really get them to a place of uh, balance and health, then you have to focus on all those different areas. So, but the biological, the bio, the very first part is the brain and the body. So when I got off all those medications, but then I just continued to work on myself. Um, I went and did some other, the cool thing about, well, just so you know, neurofeedback is the reason why it's difficult to just sense somebody to do neurofeedback is because there's a lot of different types. There's a lot of proprietary systems, but right. in my journey, I've done pretty much all of them. Right. <laughs> so when I'm treating someone, I kind of know like, Hey, we can do this or this, and right. here's another option. Um, but I, after i got much better uh, where I worked. I mean, where I was treated, um, he offered me a job to come back and work at the clinic that I've been treated. Right. So again, I was still trying to find, I felt so much better. I slept better. I didn't have such mood swings. I, I was starting to feel good about myself. I was in a much better balanced place, but now I've got right. to find what's my life purpose, right? Right. Well, don't we all? We're all, <laughs> right. I think there's a so, lot of us looking for that. Right. So I moved to Memphis. I was there for a year with my, my really good friend, Pete, who was, it was his mom who is paid for everything and helped right. me get on back on my feet. And so um, he offered me a job. So I moved from Memphis back to Burleson and I worked at a foster home. So a buddy of mine, there was a place. So, and the, one of the, the kids who I built a relationship with works for me now. Um, right. Really cool. Um, and so um, after working at the private clinic for about four years, I got tired of them because they would give me the worst of the worst because I liked it. I like a challenge. And so most of the clinicians would, would listen, why don't we just And so this when you say they would give you the worst of the worst, like we still haven't gotten to how we started, how we, how we even started the nonprofit, like when you had the epiphany, but when you're working at the foster care, you're saying when you were at the foster care home, they would give you the worst kids. No, yeah. when I was at the private clinic. Uh, oh, they would give living, you the worst. Okay. The, the other clinicians would work with kids for a while. Like, Let's just give it to Brian. Because I I like to challenge. I also have a crazy story. And I'm also right. very excited. And so I, I liked working with kids. And I liked a challenge. So after a while, though, they would bring, like I got to work with foster kids or adopted kids. Right. And so they come to the table with all kinds of issues. And so I would train them, but it's very expensive. The equipment's very expensive. The training's very expensive. 
So it's usually cost prohibitive for most people who really need it. Right. So I was really getting tired of people coming and bringing their, their adopted kid or whoever needed help. And they'd have to just quit before we reached our goals because they, they couldn't, couldn't afford, afford it. it. Cause you use thousands of dollars. Right. So I, I, I just, and I come from a ministry background where we just serve and for free you just and, give and give. Right. So I, I hated that anyway. So when I got married, my wife knew about this vision. She said, okay, let's just do it. And so she helped me put it together. She helped me get the equipment. She helped me, you know, put everything together. And so that um, I could start it. And then for like the first year and a half, it was slow going. And then, what year did you guys start Foster the Mind? What year did you start? So this is 2022. So 20, I think um, 2018. And then what, so what, um, how are you getting your kids? Like, how does this, how does it work where someone comes to you? How do you, how do, do foster well, care have I, you on speed dial? The local foster well, when care? I left, when I left, when I left the clinic, there was two kids that I knew I had to stay in touch with most everybody else. I, so that's the big thing in mental health. When you're, when you work with clients, you have to make sure there's continuum of care and they get taken care of. Right. So it just was miraculous the way it worked. It's like everybody had kind of come to a head where they're better, moving on. I could transfer to the clinicians, but there was two kids that I knew because we connected and bonded. So I knew that I was going to have to keep working with them. And so um, I eventually was able to come back and start working uh, with that kid. And then I had a good friend who used to, the board president, he knew some people who had a mental health clinic. And so that's where he practiced out the back, the back part of their clinic. And so the cool thing is, is they get, they get um, kids who they don't know what to do with, or it's beyond their scope and they give them to me. Oh, that's so, great. so for instance, the recent one has Tourette's um, like really severe traps, like, oh. like screaming F you. I'm so sorry. Oh, just wow. this cute little teenage oh. girl. You know, I'll smash your head with the baseball bat. I'm so sorry. She would just always be apologetic. Wow. She'd flip you off. She'd be screaming. She just, wow. and she could not control it. And so she spent nine years with neurologists and psychiatrists. And so no relief. But in my field, working with ticks is not uncommon. Right. So it's kind of frustrating because there's so many people that could be helping. So right now she doesn't, she doesn't have any physical or vocal ticks. She's playing the guitar. She's in drama got a boyfriend and she's thriving it, it took us a while and so it was really kind of cool as it every time and so we did a brain map and we find we do source localization to find where those ticks are and then we just start training and as the brain heals it was cool because every time you walk her back from the front office a little less ticks a little less making noise a wow. little less saying things and it just sort of eventually just dissipated well, the brain uh, creates these new super highways, you know, once it goes down a path. Right. And I always tell this like to the kids, like if you're, it takes whatever, six to eight weeks, and I'm not talking with using the biofeedback, but you know, if you decide I'm not going to have a Diet Coke every day and you decide you're going to walk to the counter and get a glass of water and you do that right. over and over and over for eight weeks, that the path in your brain is bigger to get the water than the Diet Coke, you know, and right. it, the brain's amazing that way. And I think that it's fascinating that that more people aren't doing what you're doing. Well, so you started a nonprofit. You've already been through. I mean, Brian, you've your own personal challenges have been extraordinary up until this point. You decided to start the nonprofit in 2018 and help kids. 
but what challenges have you had just running a business that, that helps people and not only helps people, but you know, you're, I think sometimes um, being a keeper of the pain and seeing how much pain is out in the world and not being a sponge and letting it pass through you is not an easy thing. You know, my aunt worked with, um, she was the head of the Catholic church and worked with the, the head psychologist to abuse children that were abused uh, victims. And she said that her biggest challenge was being a keeper of the pain, but letting the pain, trying to find a way for it to pass through her and not to hold on to it, to not right. be the sponge, but to let the water flow through. And so I think about how many challenges in your work, that's the first thing, I'm putting words in your mouth, but I think about the level of pain you see every day in humanity, but then I think of all the joy you do. So, so share some of the challenges that you have in doing this work. So when I said I hate band-aids, so, and I'm basically living out for helping other people the same way that Mrs. Anderson helped me. So I'll give you an example, okay? So another, she's been adopted, but she was a fox. She was, um, had lots of abuse. Um, and so we, we started training her. We really calmed down her anxiety. And so that, kind of our models, we calm the brain down and then I'll process trauma. Like you've probably heard of EMDR, but I do EMDR on steroids because I use called alternating current stimulation. It's just a very light stimulation and a pulse electromagnetic field therapy. And so it basically forces the right and left hemisphere to alternate while you're telling a story. And what that does is it doesn't erase the memory, but it starts to remove the emotional impact that that specific memory has. It's really powerful. I actually carried all my equipment up to my therapist's office and hooked the machine up while I was telling all my past and all my trauma because it's wow. just... And so uh, for this one girl... We've, we've done that. And so she had lots of a social anxiety, lots of trauma. And so she's so much calmer now. She's more focused, getting schoolwork done. We, we, but what I try to do is find out what they're interested in so I can get them to be invested and um, in themselves and start to realize what they're capable of. And so she wanted to do, she's a brilliant artist. So we, I paid for her and let her have Adobe suite she wanted to do podcasts or she wanted to do like a, she wanted to do animation. So got her a, a recorder. So we basically give what, you know, and so she's done two or three now. Uh, I had a kid who um, we've been training for a while. And so he had an interesting guitar, bottom guitar. He has ongoing guitar lessons that I pay for just anything that I think, because it's not just about training their brain and getting the better. You have to also look at the environment they're in give the family support I'm going to be paying for. There's a, a good friend of mine, a colleague. She has a organization that goes into to homes and she reviews them, kind of looks at the environment, right. talks about what they're struggling with and helps them kind of organize and, and set up for success. And so I'm going to pay for them to go out to, to this kid's home. I just, whatever I feel like they need, whatever crops up. And that's kind of what I want to do. Like my motto would be like, it would be like, I don't know really how to say it, but you know, to be able to walk along these kids and we, and, and that's why I want to eventually pay them very well because most right. organizations that are nonprofit don't pay well. 
And in this field, it's really important. And the reason why, because it takes a toll. So most people quit. Well, or and gone. it's emotionally, I mean, the, the work you're doing yes. specifically is emotionally really challenging. When you're seeing a child that's suffering, that's had trauma, that's being removed from foster care, that's been through abuse, or, you know, the whole host of things, and you're treating them or dealing with them, to see that pain day in and day out is challenging. But then there is a flip side. Because you do have happy endings. You do have successes. Yes, we do have successes, which is really, really exciting. And it's kind of cool because my two two techs really, it's been fun to watch them. They're pretty young to get to be a part of them. And them giving people giving us cards on Christmas. Thanks for changing my son's life, my daughter's life. Thanks for or And so when I say daughter, most lots of them have been adopted. Most of the kids I work with, and but then I also work with a lot of adults who had childhood trauma. Um, and so they're so if they're uh, they're adopted and but they're acting up or they're having crazy behavior, and their parents, their adopted family, their parents have um struggled to find you know, they've taken them to psychologists, psychiatrists. Are you like the last stop? Oftentimes, people people find neurofeedback usually like me find it as a last resort because it's not widely known. It's very expensive. Insurance doesn't pay for it. Um, and so, yes, oftentimes, and, and there's a lack of understanding in the mental health field of trauma and the impact it has and how much it really. And so clients that I have now who are older, right. so it's not uncommon for them to have uh, fibromyalgia, or immune disorders or arthritis because, and there's a book by Bessel van der Kolk, the body keeps the score. And so that's actually what happens is there is a, a connection between the mind and the body. And so you see these people and they have just a slew of issues because of their childhood it's, trauma that's never been flushed, never been addressed. They've right. gone to psychiatrists, they've been given some medication, but it is a Band-Aid. I hate right. Band-Aids. And so I... I, that's why I like it because the nonprofit model, I can work with clients for years. I can have a kid come in. I've got a client now who's 10. So when he's 17 and come out with some other issues dressing, I want him to come because my dream is to have a this clinic and a school and a foster home and an okay, adoption. Okay, you asked the question. You answered the question before I could yes. ask it. Because yes. <laughs> the question is, what is your dream? I mean, you're a baby. 2018, you're a baby in the nonprofit world. You're only a couple of years old, but right. it doesn't mean you can't. Everything starts, you know, Home Depot started as a mom and pop hardware store. Everything starts small. Every nonprofit starts with a person and an idea. It doesn't start huge. So, so I, I cut you off, but I'm going to ask you so you can tell me your answer because I know you know. Okay. But what is your dream? for foster the mind but your dream is to create what create a home a campus that has mental health treatment that has a art studio because it has um um a adoption agency a foster care place for texas is one of the few places when you turn 18 and you're a foster kid that they no longer support you or help you california doesn't either there's a lot of, okay, well, there's a lot of people who are homeless and struggle. And so, and even 
So I want to have also a place where they can teach welding and just everything else that might be helpful for someone who isn't going to go to school and go to college. Right. And I want to have my own. I was a big brother when I was in college, but it's not a great organization. It's not well organized. They don't have enough people. So I'm going to create my own. But those people are going to be trained in trauma treatment because most of my stuff like I go to homes, I have mobile I have mobile equipment. And so I right. just go to homes and treat them. And then they do come to the clinic. But I want to be able to have all these, these mobile trauma therapists who are also befriending and being a big brother, big sister to all these kids who need help. Well, and I think that that's the beauty of, of you help the nonprofit system because if you're doing it correctly, and obviously you have, because you have people that you have helped that are working for you and the pay it forward model works and, and it provides purpose. It provides a path. It provides clarity. And when you are given something and you want to help the next person along, I mean, that's the way it works. And most of the nonprofit founders I've interviewed are people that have had something happen to them, whether it's cancer, rape, whatever, and they're starting the organization just so it doesn't happen to one person. That's their whole impetus is, and on the flip side is when they light the torch and inspire someone with what they did proactively to help someone, that person wants to take the torch and light another. And you are the torch, Brian, whether you like it or not, you're the torch, you're the torch. And so having mentors and having big brothers and having these kids that you're helping learn to give back to other people is a gift that spreads the light that spreads the goodness that spreads the joy. Well, and I'm fighting and I'm fighting now I'm realizing that CPS, how bad it is judges. I mean, I'm going child protective services. Yes. services. I'm going to court with some clients. I'm seeing how jaded and just the whole system. So now I realize I've got a bigger battle than I realized. That's okay. But um, that the CDC has said, and this is from Foster the Minds website, $2 trillion is the economic fallout of mental health, $2 trillion. So for us to be proactive and in investing or supporting organizations like Foster the Mind is, is a is a smart business decision. Not only is it emotionally um, and spiritually a brilliant right. thing to do, but it's a smart business decision. I've got people going that have gone back to work, pursuing careers, going back to school when they were going to file for disability. Some of them, have, like I said, I'm just going to file for disability because I can't function because I'm having panic attacks all day. Well, Being I think the hardest life. thing too, and I think going back to challenges of nonprofits is we wear a lot of hats. We wear a lot of hats. We run program, we fundraise, we market, we answer the phone, we do everything. I mean, I run a nonprofit that serves 3000 kids and we have two and a half employees, myself and 1.5 other. And, And it is cool. And we train the trainer, you know, our high school kids teach, our college kids teach our high school kids, our high school kids teach our middle school kids. And we kind of have this waterfall, waterfall of leadership that we teach. Um, but it, we wear a lot of hats and trying to decide what hat to wear, what day, and to be proactive and not reactive is very challenging. And when you're dealing with crisis, family crisis situations that 
will interrupt the most organized schedule, best of plans for the day. It doesn't work that way. So there, there's a lot of challenges just with that in itself. And Most there's definitely. challenges just personally with having to manage trauma all the time. Well, and then to have enough to come home to my wife and, and stepsons and be able to give to them. So yeah. I, it's, it's a learning process. I'm getting much better at it. Um, and uh, I, I try to, I like to mountain bike. I spend a lot of time outdoors. That's and uh, I, anyway, I'm going to be riding in the hotter than hell this summer. So I wanted to do all those events to raise money too and kind of get some exposure for Boston Mine. But um, I think that's brilliant. I think that's so great. So this has been a long, I mean, it's been, a sh- you've had a long journey, not saying that you're old, but yes. the life experience that you have Thank lived you. has been rich and deep and varied. And there's gotta be a lot of lessons that have come with all that you have been through and all that you see. So share with us some of the things that you've learned just during this journey. I think most of all, and the really most exciting thing about all this is the neuroplasticity of the brain. That no matter what you've experienced, no matter what you've been through, that the brain can be rewired, can be changed so that they become a strength as opposed to a downfall. Um, and so that's been my personal experience. Um, and that's what happens with, so when I, when a client comes to me and they've lived in chronic fight or flight and I'm, and they're having panic attacks all day long, every day. And I'm telling them my own story, my own journey, I can see, that's sort of my gift, I guess, part of my gift, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm seeing my own self, but I can see you know, six months from now, I can see three months from now, I can see, I can see where I think they should be. Right. And so like we and have, do they see it? Do they see it? When no, I didn't see, see it. it. I was, you no, when it, I started but, doing, I started doing your feedback. I was like, this is not going to work. It's not going to work. But when you share with a client, this is where you're going to be. Cause I know where you're going to be. Do they believe right. you? Do they see, can no. they see it? No, no. But I asked them, I'm asking them because I share my story. I'm asking them to trust me. Don't trust yourself because you're not there yet, but I'm asking you to trust me and you keep coming. And so I've got two, well, three clients now who they were having panic attacks all day long. And you can see it in the brain. You can see the brain waves when we get a recording. And so as we've trained, so much fun because now they can have a conversation without having a panic attack. And it's just, it's, it's Amazing. just it's very miraculous and it feels very surreal oftentimes, even though it's been kind of my story just of change. And then we see lots of clients, but still every time it's still amazing to me to see that happen. People hear that you had pain and suffering and darkness, but you came through it and look at what you're doing to help other people. And that's the hope that people need. They need to hear stories like yours, that there is a way through. It's not easy, but there's a way through. Well, and you're, you're, you're right. So everybody that I see, my vision is, my desire is for them not to suffer the way I suffered. See? And for them and to find their way faster, which is what we're doing. Like, Brian, this uh, is so good. So, this is so yeah. good. 
So tell me how you think you've changed. I mean, obviously from afraid, suicidal, depressed to this guy whose smile is really ginormous when you talk about your work and the lives you're changing, you've obviously changed in incredible ways. How do you think you've changed? So what's been cool about all my journey of healing, especially with Amanda, because she's been absolutely amazing for me. She's she has she has held me while I've wept forever because I've never never been married before because it wasn't safe. Right. And so um I'm starting, I just continue to feel more like adult. I'm feeling more like I'm my emotional, my emotional age and my real age are starting to get closer Come together. They're, they're See, I'm together. trying to be the opposite. I'm trying uh, to be the kid. Right. <laughs> You're trying to be um, the adult and I'm trying to be younger. <laughs> right. So, um, and then also just, um, just feeling a sense of peace about that. And my wife's big and talking about seasons, like things happen in seasons. So I really hang on to that a lot. And, uh, that even She's when wise. I can't help some right now is that I know that I'll something will happen and I'll continue to be able to help them. Like, so if, if there's a hiccup in their treatment or something else happens in their family, I've just, because of my own story, I keep reminding myself of the whole seasons thing. And secondly, that to be cautious with my expectations, not that I change them as far as people getting better, but that I'm not expecting it to happen overnight and reminding myself how long it took me to get here. So I guess being married, being married to an outcome and versus being just doing what you can do. Yeah. And I, I really, the biggest thing too, is I, because I do live in the future and where I want to be learning to enjoy the present moment. And I'm, I'm grateful to actually have a family. I never thought I would be a part of a family. So I, I That's really enjoy the connectedness and the, how grounded I am. And so now that I've started the nonprofit, so my vision has been able to change. So now I get to, to see clients plugged into a relationship, into a family on the other side of all the stuff that they dealt with because I did it. So and, and I, it's, right. I get to keep sharing part of who I am and part of my story with clients and then helping them realize the same thing. But they're the ones doing the work, not me. I get to be around for part of it, and I try to facilitate and guide them, but they're the ones doing the really heavy lifting. Uh, I think that you've done a lot of heavy lifting, and (sighs) I think it's a lot of heavy lifting. And I have to say, your journey is, is remarkable. And what you're doing to give back to so many people is just such a gift and it's so desperately needed and just the educating you're doing with everyone listening to learn about this as an option and to learn about things that people don't even know exist. I just think I'm just so impressed, but before um, we wrap it up, I need to know where we can support you, where we can donate, where we can find out um, how to reach out. We know you're in Texas, but where can we send money? Where can we send friends? Give us all that information. So fosterthemind.org. So F-O-S-T-E-R-T-H-E-M-I-N-D.org. And so there is actually a, a link on there to donate. Um, 
And are you on so, social media? Are you on Facebook and Instagram? We're, we're, well, once we get all this stuff put together, then it's, we're going to be on Facebook and Instagram. I'm going to do. We've got. We've signed to do a crowdfund, so we're going to really hit it hard. And I'm going to go out and, and start sharing and meeting everyone that I can. Um, I think that that's fantastic. Well, I hope that everyone listening. Um, hears you goes to your website and hopefully follows you when you hit the road and you let us know when you let us know we'll we'll put we'll pump it out that um with all your social media we are so grateful for you brian and i'm grateful for amanda connecting us and i'm grateful for amanda with all she's done for you and i'm grateful for everything you are doing to help these kids and i mean god bless you i just think the work you're doing is so needed and so beautiful and I'm so grateful for you sharing your story with us today. So thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Charity Matters podcast. I really enjoyed talking to our guest, Brian Butler, about what it takes to start a business that truly changes people's lives. I think Brian's comment about there's always a way forward, even in dark times, was so inspiring and true. To learn more about modern day heroes like Brian, or if you'd just like to reach out to us, visit us at charity-matters.com or connect with us on Instagram at Charity Matters. If you enjoyed our conversation, we would love it if you shared this with your friends and family. And don't forget to leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Remember that together we can make a difference one small act of kindness at a time. See you next week. Thank you.